Good morning. Videos like that uh, always move me. <laughs> there's a beauty about creation, and there's a beauty about the magnitude of this world that we live in. And there's so many aspects of a video like that, and I could watch that stuff all day because it reminds me of the grand story that we're all a part of. And it reminds me that while my life matters and has importance, there's a much larger story at play, and I'm a part of that larger story. So as I was praying about what to talk to you guys about, what God wanted me to speak about this this Sunday, um, he kept saying things to me about this topic of play and um, the way in which creation is very playful, even though it's powerful and even sometimes dangerous, um, that it's ultimately also has a playful side to it. And there's something about God and his nature and what it means in his personality to be a playful creator that he wanted me to explore. And so I realized that over the last couple of years, through some thought leaders and some people I've been exposed to in the Christian world, the topic of play has actually come up a lot um, in some writing and some podcasts and other things. And I started to think, yeah, that would be really fun to talk about. Um, And I think it is, and I think it's going to be. But what I've realized in the past couple weeks is I have so much to learn about play as we're going to define it uh, this morning. And I come to you now, really, this morning as someone who's raw and unfinished and learning. I'm a student in this, and um, I feel very much like what's happening this morning is really I'm letting you in on the conversation that God and I have been having for a while. And it's not that I come to you as like I have authority and an expert opinion to give you on something, but more let me just share with you what's, what's bubbling and what's stirring in me. So I hope that's okay with you, that it's kind of raw and in process. Um, And so what I want to start with is just this idea of let's play. Um, It's summer, and in summer, play is kind of that thing that maybe you do a little more than other times of the year, at least it is for me. And summer always, for me, reminds me, takes me back to my youth, right? So I, I was reflecting this week on wiffle ball. Like, anybody remember Wiffle Ball? Yeah. It was just, like, the greatest. Um, We used to, my next-door neighbor, Paul, had a yard that was totally not suited for Wiffle Ball. Uh, There was this huge tree in the middle, and there was a swing set and a sandbox, but we played Wiffle Ball there anyway. And um, and his poor dad could never grow grass, you know, um, because we just ran the thing into a mud patch most of the time. But we would play for hours on end. And this one day in particular, I remember, it seemed like we played, you know, forever, right? I mean, summer and time slows down and, you know, I'm a middle school boy and the only thing I'm thinking about is playing wiffle ball. And we played until it was dark. And it was, we still were going. And so like the pitcher would stand on the mound and he'd hold the ball up like this so that the batter could see, oh, you're about to throw it. And then he'd throw it, and the batter would just kind of hope to hit it. And the only way you knew was you'd sound, you'd listen for the sound of the crack of the bat, right? Oh, it was the best. It was so good. But as an adult, right, I mean, I, most of my memories of play are reflecting back to things like that. 
And so I began to wonder, is there a role for play? And some of these guys that I've been listening to think there is a role for play as an adult. Um, And so I wanted to explore that. So there's this quote from author and psychotherapist Dan Allender where he says this, without play, there is something devastating that happens to the human heart. Play is not an option if you want to grow socially, psychologically, and spiritually. So I have to say, honestly, yes, amen to that. But at the same time, does play seem as crucial to you as it does to Dan Allender? (laughs) To me, not always. And I'm in process kind of learning about it, but I have to be really honest and say most days, like most Tuesday afternoons, I'm I'm in the weeds, right, of the difficulties of life and particularly right now, a very stressful season with some health issues with my mother and trying to coordinate that, and it's the stuff of life. And yet, Allender is saying, oh, this isn't even a negotiable. This isn't, this is essential. And so what I wonder is if he's got a different definition of play than I do, right? And and in fact, he does. And I just want to recommend, if you want to explore this topic of play, if, if you're curious about it, Dan Allender has a podcast at the Allender Center. They did a whole series called The Summer of Play. And Ransomed Heart has a podcast, actually from a couple years ago, uh, called The Serious Business of Play. So you, you can check those out. So, so Dan Allender, first we'll talk about what he says play is not, and then we'll get to the definition of what he says it is. He says play is not distraction. It's not dissociation. It's not escape. It's not avoidance. And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, well, that seems to be primarily what play is in our culture, right? Let me relieve some stress. Let me get away. Let me just kind of find something I can do that gets me a little bit of space where the pressure's off for a short while. And distraction I think we live in a culture that is wired for distraction, whether it's social media or just the pace of life or whatever it is. And yet he says, no, that's not actually play. Play involves being fully alive in the present moment in a way that brings you closer to who you truly are as God has designed you. So right there, I'm like, oh, well, that's totally different. That's not how I usually think about play. And he goes on to say, in play, you're not burdened by the past. You're not anticipating or worried about the future. You are simply an experience, you're in an experience of joy with God that invites others to experience joy and the presence of God. So that's really different. And I would say probably in the way that many of us have thought about play, that's not the definition we've been using. So I want to kind of push into that a little bit and explore that. I think as he defines play, I think play is actually really opposed in a lot of ways. Like culturally, we've got stuff to do, right? We're, we're adults. We've got a mortgage to pay. We have jobs. We have the stuff to do. And sometimes it just feels like, well, play is superfluous, right? It's this luxury. 
Again, not according to Allender. And even, even in the church sometimes, it's like, well, you know, God's work. We have to do God's work. It's very important. It's very serious. And of course, it is. But is there a category we can open up in our thinking that is Allender's concept and idea of play? And how would that actually enhance life around us, life in our churches and our relationships? Um, there can be internal and external conflict over this. Like, it's just really hard sometimes to believe, yeah, that really is valuable. I should take time to engage in play that meets this definition. And I'll, I'll talk in a minute about kind of what some of that could look like. Um, and I think we have an enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy, and he would love to just, like, take that out. Like, play is not a category for you. It's not an option. And then we find ourselves bitter or resentful or kind of resigned to the difficulties of our lives. Um, And I believe that Jesus was playful during his time on earth. And I believe that he continues to be playful with us in our relationships with him now. Um, Many of you know these stories if you've been around the Bible. So, you know, John 2, there's the wedding at Cana. And um, at the wedding at Cana, they run out of wine and Jesus changes the water into wine. But if you do the math in that story, it's hundreds of gallons of wine. First of all, late in the party, even the steward says, wow, this is really crazy. Nobody brings out the good stuff late in the, in the party. They always bring out the cheap stuff because people are, well, they've had enough now and they can't really tell the difference. And, and Jesus, I think he's just having fun with, yeah, Let's just make some wine, you know? Um, and, you know, in, in the text, it says he thus revealed his glory. I'm thinking, well, what about hundreds of gallons of wine reveals the glory of God? Well, something does. I don't pretend to totally understand, but I think, there's, I think there's a hint of playfulness in what Jesus is doing. Or Matthew 14, um, he's just finished feeding the 5,000. After that event, he sends the disciples off in a boat, And he goes up on a mountain to get away. In the middle of the night, the guys are out in the boat, and Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, they're totally freaked out. They've never seen that before. But I think there's a playfulness about Jesus even in that. Like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll just go out and and join the guys in the boat. And, you know, when Peter says, well, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come to you, I think Jesus was like, right on, let's play. Like, let, let's do that. That would be fun. Um, and, you know, a lot of the story gets interpreted through the issue of Peter looking down and, you know, he starts to sink and the issue of faith, which is valid. But just the fact that Jesus is doing what he's doing, I think has a hint of playfulness in it. Or perhaps Matthew 17, the uh, religious leaders are giving Jesus and his disciples a hard time, as they often did. And one of the things that they talked to him about is, your, your uh, teacher, Jesus, he doesn't pay the temple tax. Why is that? And so Jesus has this conversation with Peter, and he says, all right, Peter, I'll tell you what. So as not to offend, here's what you're going to do. Go down to the lake, go fishing. First fish you catch, open its mouth, and there's going to be a coin in there. And then we'll pay the temple tax with that. what? Like, that's, that's bizarre, but it's funny. Like, I tell you what, 
you guys are all clamoring at me because of this whole temple tax thing and you're missing the forest for the trees. Here's how I'm going to provide the temple tax. We're going to find it in the mouth of a fish. In fact, I know which fish and I know how much the coin is going to be worth and it's going to pay for my temple tax as well as Peter's. I think that's really playful. But even in modern times, my, um, my wife Carolyn needed to rent a car last fall. We have um, two kids in college. One of them goes to Pitt. And some things were going on where, you know, he needed some help. And so kind of spur of the moment, she's like, I really think I'm going to go take, help him take care of this. She goes and rents a car. And, you know, you go online and, you know, they give you these options in terms of classes and, you know, how fancy and how expensive the car is. And uh, she picks something mid-range. And so she shows up and um, <clears throat> this does the paperwork. And the guy says, okay, your car is actually at another lot. We're having it brought over right now. And he takes the remote for another car and he flicks the lights of it. And he says, or you could take this one. And uh, it's a Maserati. <laughs> and, and, and my wife goes, like I think most people would say, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. So nothing happens with that. And then a few moments pass and the car still hasn't arrived. And so my wife goes, so were you serious about the Maserati? And he goes, yeah. And she says, for the same price as the Nissan? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. So she got to drive this high-end Italian car out to Pittsburgh and back. It was safe. She was on, you know, I wasn't able to go with her, so she was by herself. She had a blast. I mean, how fun of God to just say, look, you have a need, but let's have fun with that. Let's just be playful in that. And I think, I think that's like the heart of God. It's not the only part of him. It's not his own, the only aspect of his personality. But I think it's a part of his personality worth exploring. Um, you know, and this same playful Jesus, you know, he sees your life. He sees my life. He, he knows where the pain is. He knows where the difficulties are. But I think his playfulness is part of his general invitation to life a certain way. Like, he knows it's hard, and I don't think he would ever shy away from admitting, you know, to us. The Bible certainly doesn't ever shy away from admitting the challenges and difficulties of life in a fallen world. But I think there's this element of play, and Jesus says, look, I know sometimes it's really hard to play, so I'm going to show you a way to live that invites you into that kind of life. So our main text is uh, Matthew 11:28 through 30 from the message, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. And if you've never checked that out, I highly recommend it. So let's read the passage. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, 
and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So, next slide. He starts with three questions. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? You know, Jesus doesn't ask these questions because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He asks these questions as a way of raising the condition of our souls to the surface in his listeners at the time, and in us through the years, through the word that's been passed down. He's raising the condition of our souls, which often lives submerged because we're doing other things. Discipleship is always shaped by the questions we ask. Good questions lead to good discipleship. And here Jesus is saying, some very, he's asking some very important questions. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but a good question can change the course of your life. It really can. Um, if you're here today and you know Jesus, for example, somewhere along the line, somebody asked a question. Maybe a friend, a family member asked you about, hey, you know, what about Jesus? Or you were inquisitive on your own and you asked some questions and, and looked into that. Um, even, even not, well, even semi-good questions can have a, an effect that changes the course of people's lives, whether for good or for ill. I heard this story once. Um, there's this guy many decades ago, the Reverend Howard Finster, which right there is a great name, and probably deserves to be a reverend just because of his name. And he was preaching uh, in the South, the deep South. And he got up to preach one Sunday. And he stands there and he puts his Bible, well, he's holding his Bible. And um, I wasn't there. The story is relayed to me by a friend. And he, um, he says, before we start, who can tell me what the sermon was about last week? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad my pastor doesn't ask that question. And nobody could answer. And so there's this kind of awkward moment of silence. And the Reverend Howard Finster puts his Bible down on the pulpit and walks out. Never to return. (laughs) He totally took up a life away from pastoral ministry and everything else. Now, I'm not recommending that's a great response from a pastor, but that changed a lot of people's lives right there. Uh, or, or even in my own life, um, it was a, a critical and important question that my wife Carolyn asked me one night that changed the course of my life and exposed my life, my double life of addiction. And she asked that question of me because a really good friend of hers asked a question of her that led to that question of me. So a good question can absolutely change the course of your life. And, and Jesus opens with these questions and goes right into, next slide, come to me, get away with me, recover your life. How do you hear Jesus' words here? I mean, he was a man. He had tone and inflection in his voice as he spoke. 
You ever, you ever listen to the words of Jesus in the Gospels and try to think of them as actually being spoken? How'd they sound coming out of his mouth? What was his, what was his you know, emphasis on the words and, and so on? How do you hear this? If you've grown up around church or the Christian subculture, there's a really good chance that you hear these words in a way that he didn't intend. And he's not telling you to have a better quiet time. He's not saying you need to be more devoted in your devotional. It's an invitation. I hear these words from Jesus really warmly, like he's beckoning us into something special. Like, I want to be with you. Come to me. It's almost like if you have a really good friend or maybe a significant other, if you're married, you know, your spouse saying, hey, let's, let's get away, right? Let, let, let's go get kind of away from the, the hustle and the bustle and just you and me, like, let's go. I hear it that way, and I think that's the heart of Jesus. He's not interested in duty or obligation. He's not trying to pressure anybody into anything. He's just offering himself. And it is an invitation. He says, if you do this, you will recover your life. He goes on and he talks, next slide, about a a real rest. Learning how to take a real rest. You know, there's, there's a very big difference between rest on the one hand and relief on the other. Right? Relief is kind of easy to come by. Right? It's binge watch something on Netflix, have a couple drinks after work, have a couple more drinks, (laughs) eat some food you really shouldn't, go shopping and buy stuff you really don't need, you don't have money for. You can get temporary relief in a lot of ways, right? Like me, develop an addiction, have a secret life. But rest is totally different. Rest is as it's as the root word would you know, imply, it's restorative. It's something that as you engage with it, something generative, something healthy happens in your heart and in your soul. And some of those same activities could be restful, like having a great meal with a friend. That could be totally restful. It could have a generative, positive effect. It's really a matter of, What are we going to it for? What are we trying to get from it? Like for me, exercise is a big part of my life. Running, cycling, so on and so forth. And sometimes that's the most restful thing I can do. Go for a run. Because it restores something. But at other times, not going for a run or not exercising is the most restful thing I can do. And you learn that if you've ever, any of you are runners, you've ever trained for a race you find out that training is important, but rest days are just as important. And Jesus promises he will show us how to take a real rest. So the question is, well, which is it, rest or relief? Jesus is like, well, bring that question to me and I'll show you. Next slide, he says, you'll learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Think about that phrase. What does that even mean? I know I don't really understand all that it means personally, but it sounds really good. (laughs) 
It sounds delightful, actually. Especially when you think about the fact that there are all kinds of rhythms that we inter- interact with on a daily basis, right? There's the rhythm at work, wherever you work. There's the rhythm at your home. If you have kids, there's a rhythm of being a parent and taking care of kids. There's a rhythm in your church life, right? Pop culture, social media, 2019 on the East Coast. <laughs> there's a rhythm. And this unforced rhythm of grace sure sounds appealing to me. Jesus is saying there is such a thing. There's a type of rhythm that's unforced. The way of grace is unforced, and there's a rhythm to it. He's inviting our heart and our soul to simply be and to find that rhythm. It's the opposite of pressure. It's the opposite of performance. It's the opposite of distraction, dissociation, your overscheduled calendar. It's the opposite of all of that. It's this something else. And I find that really appealing, even though I'm hardly even able to say exactly what it is. The unforced rhythms of grace just keeps drawing me back, like, God, you've got to show me what that is. I need that. And then he goes on and he says, you will learn to live freely and lightly. I think it's really awesome that the creator of the universe in the flesh, in Jesus, when he's talking to people, says, I'm not going to lay anything heavy on you. I won't make anything, I won't make you carry anything that's ill-fitting. This is directly the opposite of what the religious leaders were doing at the time. And I think, you know, whether, however he was thinking of it, he's definitely drawing a distinction between himself and those religious leaders whom he had many conflicts with. Because his complaint about them was, you just burden people with all these obligations and duties religiously that choke the life out of them and don't bring them any closer to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you anything heavier or fitting. And he just says, like, that's just not who he is. That's not his character. Peterson translates this whole section in a way that just invites us to do life differently. It's a way of living with Jesus in actual togetherness with him that cares for our hearts and our souls. And here's the thing. I really believe that every person on this planet is looking for this. They may not be looking in a church. They may not be even looking to the person of Jesus for it. But across cultures, nationalities, financial status, or lack thereof, I think everybody is looking for a restful, grace-filled life where they can live freely and lightly at a rhythm that's not going to wear them out and make them crazy. So wherever people look for it, I think this is what they're looking for, and Jesus knows that. He knew it then, and he sure knows it now in our day and age. And I feel like it's, this is Jesus' way of saying, yeah, I can, I can show you how to live. 
right? I mean, he is the expert on reality and on humanity. And he goes, yeah, I know what you're looking for and I can show it to you. And he's done with grace. It's done with beauty. It's done without obligation and a sense of condemnation. Like, how come you guys don't get it? It's come to me. Get away with me. I'm going to give you your life back. There is this rhythm that I want to invite you to. What Jesus is talking about here is something that at least commonly uh, is referred to as soul care. <laughs> right? I, I don't know if you've come across that term or it seems to be fairly popular. At least maybe it's only in the things I read. But I feel like even you know, Christians, non-Christians are kind of talking about this topic of soul care. And Jesus is kind of laying it out like, yeah, I invented that, you know. Um, (laughs) Soul care is what you do to nurture yourself towards wholeheartedness. It's what you do to quell the noise so that you can begin to hear the unforced rhythms of grace. And it's what we do Soul care is what we do to enter into play and the experience of God. Because in the difficulties, in the, the, the pain and the anguish of stressful things, that if we went around this room, we've all got something, or many things. He's saying, even in the midst of that, this life, this unforced rhythm, living freely and lightly, can happen. And he's inviting us into that. And we need it. Because we can't enter the kingdom and the life that God has for us without taking care of our souls and without finding Jesus in this rhythm. We don't have something to give other people because we're depleted ourselves and we aren't really connected to God and the life that Jesus has. This is the way the kingdom operates that Jesus is from. He's like, if you want people... If you want people to have me, if you're going to tell people about me, this, this is what it looks like. Our relationships will suffer without soul care. They really will. So, as I close, I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to listen to this next section. I'm going to ask some questions, and I, they're all rhetorical Don't call out any answers. Just ponder them. Um, As I said, good discipleship is shaped by good questions. So here are a few. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Even as I ask these questions, what is your soul doing right now? Do you want a real rest? And still with your eyes closed, this is a question you can ask God, which is really also a prayer. Father, would you tune my heart to the unforced rhythms of grace. Just make it a prayer. Father, 
would you tune my heart to the unforced rhythms of grace. Amen.